Well, good morning and thanks for being with us today, whether you're sitting here in person or joining in with us online. We are thankful that you're here. In case we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I am James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith. And today is our final week in a series we're doing called Finding Happiness, where we've been discussing what biblical wisdom and modern science teach us about where true and lasting happiness can be found. But before we really dig into today's sermon, let's just take a second and pray together. Lord, thank you for another chance to come together and sing your praise and read your word and be with our our fellow friends and believers. We do want to lift up some people in our church family today in special prayer. We think of Carol Swartz's family as she passed this last week. Be with them. Give them peace and comfort. We also want to lift up Margaret Schmack as she's um, working on going home to you. We pray that you give her comfort during this time and that you may take her home so she can be united with you in a new and amazing way. We think of Don Jackwin as well as he's still recovering from COVID. We ask that you give him a, a quick recovery and get him back to his normal self. Lord, we're thankful for the work that you do in our church and we Ask today that you help us hear what we need to hear so that we can follow you more faithfully. Amen. Well, during the first week of this series, Pastor Mike mentioned some statistics about what actually contributes to our happiness. And one of the stats he shared was that our external circumstances only account for about 10% of our happiness. Now, we can think about this stat in two different ways. On one side, it means that we can be happy even if our circumstances aren't what we want them to be. But then on the other side, it means that it is perfectly possible for our external circumstances to be great and for us to still be unhappy. Let me say that again. Our circumstances can be great and yet we can still be unhappy. And there's a lot of reasons for this, but one of the more frequent reasons that this happens is that many of us have a tendency to always find something to be unhappy about. We pick out something we don't like, like, or oftentimes it's something small, and we focus on that one thing and we let it tick away at our joy. Uh, Just an example so that you know exactly what I'm talking about. When Meredith and I first got married, we took a delayed honeymoon to Alaska, And we did one of those fancy cruise tours. And one of my favorite places we went was Denali National Park. It was spectacular. To this day, it still stands as probably the most breathtakingly beautiful place I've ever been. The mountains, they loomed overhead. You could see moose and bear and beavers and caribou. The colors of the trees against the sky was amazing. Every aspect was incredible. Now, even if you're not an outdoorsy person, this was still an incredible place because the cruise line, it would drive you there in comfort, and it would take you to a really nice place to look at all of God's beautiful creation, and then when you were done looking, they would feed you a delicious lunch. It was really all you could ask for. So here we are, we're looking up at North America's tallest mountain and embracing all the views of one of the last true wildernesses on earth, and with us was this lady and she was clearly unhappy. 
She was looking at the same majestic landscape as us. She had just eaten the same delicious lunch that we had. But as we stood at that scenic overlook, she humphed and sighed and made all sorts of noise that let everyone else around her know that she was clearly unhappy. Now, I was a big dummy, and I made the mistake of making eye contact with her, and she seized on that opportunity of eye contact, and she came up to me and she said, I wish they could do something about the bugs out here. Here we are standing in one of the truly last wild places in the world, looking out at the tallest mountain in North America. This is seriously a place people dream their entire lives of going to. And instead of letting the moment sink into her memory, she let herself get upset about the bugs. And there was like two mosquitoes out there. (laughs) But this is sometimes what we do, isn't it? We let ourselves focus on something that we don't like instead of the things that are good, and we end up spoiling our happiness. When we focus on things that make us unhappy, we end up being unhappy. And here's the real joy killer in this. The more we focus on what makes us unhappy, and the more that way of thinking becomes ingrained into our psyche, the more we spend time focusing on what we don't like, the easier it becomes for us to only see the things that make us unhappy. That way of processing the world becomes normal to our way of thinking. I am sure that you know people who have found themselves stuck in this sort of negative thought cycle. They spend so much time picking out the bad and everything that by this point in time, they could find something to complain about in heaven. Now, maybe that's you. Maybe that's your spouse. Maybe that's your teenager, but here's the point I'm getting at. When all we focus on is the bad in life, we end up spoiling our happiness and oftentimes the happiness of those around us. When we focus on the things that make us unhappy, we end up being unhappy. Now this is why today's sermon is so important because no matter what you do and where you go, there will always be things that can spoil your happiness if you let them. And if we want to be people who see lasting and true happiness, we need to learn to be people who process the world around us in a way that brings us joy rather than dread. And one of the best ways to do this is to practice intentional gratitude. Because when we look at the world through a lens of gratitude, it adds to our joy. Now, this is something the Apostle Paul understood, and he encouraged his churches to do this. Check out this passage that Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Thessalonica. He said, Always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Now, if you read that and you're like, that's great, Paul, but you don't know my circumstances, Here's the thing we've got to realize about this passage. Paul wrote this to a bunch of Christians who, based on their physical circumstances, had every reason to not be joyful and to not be thankful. You see, the church in Thessalonica, it was one of the heaviest persecuted churches in the New Testament. 
they were not only hated by the other religious and ethnic groups in their city, but there were people actively working to get them thrown in prison, or worse yet, to have them killed. In fact, we have this really cool story from the book of Acts that gives us a glimpse into what life was like for us. Uh, The story goes a little bit like this. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he was on one of his missionary journeys, and he stops in a little town called Thessalonica. And while in Thessalonica, he goes to the local synagogue to talk to the people about Jesus. Now, several Jewish families and a few Greek families, they decided that the story about Jesus being God and dying for their sins and rising again sounded great, so they placed their faith in Jesus. However, some of the Jewish leaders in the area who were aware of the rising movement of Jesus followers, who also thought that the Jesus movement presented a distinct threat to the Jewish way of life, they were not excited about the Jesus movement gaining momentum in Thessalonica. So they decided to stir up the town against Paul and the new Christians. And this is how Acts chapter 17 describes it. It says, They rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So basically, these Jewish leaders, they're telling everyone in the town that there's this known insurrectionist named Paul, and he has shown up in their city and is trying to raise support so that people would support this guy named Jesus to oust Caesar and take over the empire. Now, as people who live in a democratic republic, this sort of accusation, it doesn't raise the same amount of fear that it would have in Thessalonica. Because the way the Roman Empire worked was that you had the seat of power in Rome, and over time, the massive military of Rome trotted all over the the Mediterranean region and subjugated a bunch of city-states. So essentially, you had all of these smaller city-states that at one point were independent or part of a different kingdom that were now ruled by Rome. And the way Rome tended to deal with their vassal states was that if the vassal state paid its taxes and sent its young men to be soldiers and didn't rebel, they were pretty much left alone and could benefit from the trade and commerce that flourished in the empire. It really wasn't a bad deal. But if your vassal state started to rebel, the Roman legions would sweep down on your town and annihilate any resistance, or they would set up a military-style government until the threat of rebellion was over. What this meant was that in towns like Thessalonica, the populace had a vested interest in not having any rumblings of rebellion. So much of a vested interest that if they even thought there was an insurrectionist movement in their presence, they were going to do everything they could to end it before word got to the Roman officials and Roman troops started showing up. It was in their best interest to violently 
root out any rebellious people before the empire got wind of it. So it's a genius move for these Jewish leaders to say to the town officials, hey, that Paul guy, he's a known insurrectionist who's trying to raise up a following for some dude named Jesus who wants to be king. It almost guaranteed that anyone being identified as a part of that insurrectionist movement would no longer have a place in that town. So what happened first was the Jews stirred up a riot to either kill or arrest Paul, but then when they couldn't find Paul, they instead arrested this guy, Jason, who was letting Paul stay in his home. And here's what it says happened next. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Now get this, Berea, it's not like a suburb of Thessalonica. It's over 50 miles away, and that is a long time to travel in the ancient world. So Paul, it's so dangerous for him that he has to flee 50 miles to get to, get to safety, which means that he had to leave this fledgling church to suffer under the economic and physical persecution that comes with being labeled an insurrectionist movement. So once Paul got settled in a safer region, he sent his disciple Timothy to go back to Thessalonica and check out how the church was doing under those circumstances. Timothy got there, he saw how they were doing, and he returned to Paul with news that the church was staying faithful to Jesus, but the situation was still really bad. And so to encourage them and help them understand how to live their faith in midst of those dire circumstances, Paul wrote the letter that we now call 1 Thessalonians to this persecuted church. So when Paul says to these Christians that they should always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances for this is God's will, he's saying this to a group of Christians who are just getting the snot beaten out of them. They're afraid of being arrested. They're suffering economically. They're being cast to the fringes of society. And Paul tells them, always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances. Now today we're focusing mostly on that last phrase where it says, be thankful in all circumstances. But I do want to take a second to look at the first two instructions as well, because I think they're all related to get Paul's point across. So first he says, always be joyful. Now I'm going to let you in on an observation I've made when it comes to humans. Some humans tend to have a more limited range of emotions. Their highs just aren't that high, their lows just aren't that low. They tend to stay within that pretty narrow bandwidth of feelings. But then there's other humans whose emotional range tends to be much bigger. Their highs are high, their lows are low, and they vacillate more frequently. And here's the observation. Those two types of people, people with big emotional ranges and people with narrower emotional ranges, they tend to marry each other. (laughs) Yep. And because of this, there are moments in life where these married people just don't understand the emotions of the people that they're married to. People with those larger emotional bandwidths, they're like, why are you so calm all the time? And people with narrower bandwidths are like, why are you feeling all of these emotions? 
Now, quick confession, this is sometimes the case between my wife and I. And uh, just as an example, and I am telling this with her permission, in one of my better husbanding moments, Meredith had been worrying about something. I don't even remember what it was anymore, but she was feeling a lot of concern and worry about it. So me, the genius husband, who usually has a, a much more limited emotional range, in an effort to be helpful, I simply told her, who tends to have a much larger range of emotions, I said, you should just stop worrying about it. Just stop worrying. All you need to do is not worry. And she said, thank you, James. I would have never thought that. What a great point. I will just stop worrying. I'll just flip off the worrying switch in my brain. This is kind of how it feels when we read Paul here. These Christians, they're being battered by their surrounding culture. And Paul tells them, just always be joyful. Thanks, Paul. Great advice. I will just flip that joyful switch in my mind and leave it on permanently because it is definitely that easy. I will just always be joyful. It doesn't really seem like the most emotionally intelligent thing for Paul to say to people who are getting bruised because of their belief in Jesus. So why does Paul say this? Well, there's an important observation that we can make here. Joy, it's not mutually exclusive with things like hardship or grief or suffering. In fact, and this is a really important point, human emotions are intricately intertwined. They're complex. They intermingle with each other. That's why we can laugh while sharing stories about someone at their funeral. It's why we can be both sad and happy when our kids grow up and get married. We can find at least some degree of joy even when our circumstances make us experience other less joyful emotions. Paul's point here isn't that there's no room for tears or pain or lament in the Christian life. Instead, it's that when we are in the midst of tears or pain or suffering or grief or sickness, we still need to make a choice to look for the things that we can rejoice in. Sometimes it's as simple as letting the coo of a baby bring a smile to your face or taking a second to see the beauty of a ray of sunshine coming through the clouds. But sometimes it takes more intentionality and effort on our part to look for something to find joy in, like reminding ourselves how an infinitely powerful and all-knowing God came to earth, became a man, took upon himself the penalty for my sin by dying on the cross in order to show me that he loves me and wants me to be a part of his family. And that God loves me, the same me that gets so much wrong, the same me that often feels unworthy of his love. Paul's point is, we have to look for the things that we can rejoice in. He says, always be joyful. Always means when it's easy. Always means when it's hard. Always be joyful. Now that first instruction, always be joyful, it actually sheds a lot of light on this next little sentence that Paul wrote. He said, never stop praying. Now these two phrases, they're connected. 
Think about never stop praying in relationship to the instruction of always be joyful. First he says, always be joyful. Then he says, never stop praying. Let's take a second. I want you to imagine that you are a first century Christian living in Thessalonica. And yesterday, you didn't sell any of your goods in the market because no one wants to do business with an accused insurrectionist. And last week, your son was accused of being a rebel and was taken off to jail and questioned by town authorities. And your spouse, they just want you to give up your newfound faith because of all the trouble it's brought on your family. And you get this letter from Paul, and in it, it says, always be joyful. Well, you read that, you fold up the letter, and you think to yourself, Paul, I'm just not sure that's possible. My life is a mess. My family's in shambles. My business is failing. I don't know if I can be joyful. And you open that letter back up and you read the next phrase. Never stop praying. Do you see how the two phrases are related? Paul's saying, Joy and suffering, they're not mutually exclusive. You can choose to fight for joy in your life. And if you feel like you can't, pray. Never stop praying. Because in prayer, we admit to God that sometimes we need his help to be joyful. And then finally, and this is really the emphasis of today's message, Paul says, be thankful in all circumstances. I've been using the NLT uh, as our translation today, but for this phrase, I think it's helpful to actually switch to the NIV because if we read this as saying, be thankful, it implies like a sense of inward or existential gratitude. Like Paul's saying, just be thankful, naturally seethe thankfulness in all circumstances. But the original Greek, it's actually communicating an imperative. So it translates a little bit better as give thanks in all circumstances. The idea being that regardless of our inner attitude, we're encouraged to practice the action of giving thanks. Paul's telling this church, look for things to be thankful for and then express that gratitude to God and others. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, what circumstances should we give thanks in? All circumstances. Now, again, I hope how we, we can see how all three of these are related to each other. Paul's talking to a battered church. He tells them, always be joyful. Even in the midst of hardship, find things to rejoice over. The obvious response from them is, well, how can I when my life is this bad? So Paul responds, never stop praying and give thanks in all circumstances. And here's where it all comes together. These three instructions work together to help us develop a way of thinking about our lives and the world around us where we are training ourselves to actually fight for joy regardless of the circumstances that we go through. It doesn't mean that we don't recognize the bad things in our life or, or that we don't ex experience extremely challenging emotions, but it does mean that we get to make a conscious decision to fight for joy 
by trying to give recognition to things that we can rejoice in, by praying about the things we can't control, and by trying to find things, even in the worst of circumstances, that we can be grateful for. And why should we do this? Well, Paul says, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Think about that. It is God's will for us to fight for joy in our lives. Why would that be a part of God's will for us? Well, if we think about Paul's theology, the defining part of Paul's theology is this. God became a man in Jesus. He lived, he died for our sins, and rose again to give us new life in him. And in his mind, this fact changes everything about the world. Nothing in our lives is untouched by this. And if we take time to think about what this means, we can see why God would want us to be joyful people. Because if God became a man as Jesus and suffered the penalty for our sins so that we could be made right with him, and if God brought us into his family, and if God has given us purpose and hope, and if he has sent his presence to be with us forever, then this means, one, that God loves us in an inexplicable and unimaginable way that is not based on anything we could do to deserve it. It's simply based on the fact that God is God and he loves us. And it means that through Jesus, God has given our lives meaning and purpose far beyond anything we could create for ourselves. And it means that God, the creator of all things, the one who is and was and will always be, is with us no matter what our life is like. It's God's will for us to live in light of these truths and for them to shape every part of our lives. So why should we be looking for things to rejoice over and giving up things that we can't control in prayer and expressing our gratitude even in the midst of hardship? It's because if we have Jesus, our lives have been totally upended. We are personal recipients of God's inexplicable love. He saved us, brought us into his family, given us purpose, promises to be with us. This doesn't mean that we're immune to our circumstances, but it does mean that we are a transformed people who even in the midst of challenges have reason to fight for joy and find the type of joy that accompanies a life transformed by God's grace. Our lives are meant to reflect God's transforming love and fighting to live a life of joy, even in the midst of horrible circumstances, is part of what it looks like to reflect the grace of God in our lives to the world around us. In other words, God wants us to live joyfully because it shows the world how his love and his grace are transforming our lives. Now let's get practical with this. The mere fact that Paul's giving these instructions to the church in Thessalonica, it means that they're probably not going to do this stuff naturally. So what can we practically do on a regular basis to develop the type of mindset where we're looking for what we can rejoice in and be grateful for? Well, one thing we can do is we can practice intentional gratitude. And I've got three suggestions for how you might try to do this. First, 
consider keeping a gratitude list in your journal. Every day, whether it's when you get up or at your lunch break or at your afternoon nap for some of you or when you're going to bed, take some time and think about things that you have to be grateful for. Make a list and then tell God about it. Secondly, make it a point to express your gratitude to four or five people every day. Find people that you can say thank you to and be specific. It's more than saying, hey, Billy, I'm super thankful for you, bro. No, we got to be specific. Find ways to thank people. Maybe it's a thank you card. Maybe it's going to your spouse and letting them know something they did for you today that you're grateful for. And then third, make sure that you're taking moments to slow down and notice the things around you that you have to be grateful for. It is hard to be grateful when we go through our day at such a frantic pace that we miss all the blessings around us. I love what John Mark Comer says about this. He says, I am never my best self when I'm in a hurry. It is hard to see what we can be grateful for if we don't slow down enough to look for it. Now, when we take time to practice intentional gratitude, it helps us develop the mindset that Paul's talking about here. The mindset where we look for things to rejoice in, where we're intentionally grateful so that we can fight for the kind of radically joy-filled life that shows God's work in us. Now, in this series, we've been talking about biblical wisdom, but we've also been mentioning some modern science as well. And so it's important to note that intentional gratitude has become really one of the hallmarks for the modern mindfulness movement. In fact, over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of research on what it does to us when we take time to be grateful. And UC Davis professor Robert Emmons, he's been doing research in this area. And in his research, what he has found is that people who purposefully practice gratitude experience more positive emotions, they feel more alive, they sleep better, they express more compassion and kindness, and they even have stronger immune systems. In other words, gratitude helps us be happy. Happy people are grateful. So church, let us be a people who develop a mindset where we fight for joy by practicing gratitude. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the book of Thessalonians and how you give us so much practical wisdom for living out our faith in circumstances that aren't ideal. This week, Lord, we pray that you help us find things to rejoice in so that we can always be joyful. We ask that you help us give up the things we can't control to you in prayer. We pray that you help us practice gratitude. Help us be a people who fight for joy so we can reflect the work you're doing in our lives to others. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.